Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Feminism, 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 feminism ruins everything. It's a feminist podcast. Hello and welcome to Feminism Ruins Everything. We are the feminist podcast where we give critiques to movies, musicals, and pop culture phenomena and potentially ruin them. Potentially. We want to acknowledge that today we are recording on stolen Ghana land at uh, the Adelaide Plains area where we are creating this podcast from is the traditional land of the Ghana people. We want to pay our respects to any Ghana or Aboriginal elders listening and acknowledge that sovereignty of this land was never ceded. So uh, in the last couple of weeks, they announced the nominations. <laughs> they. They. <laughs> Ominous. <laughs> The all-powerful they. The nominations for the Tonys were announced. Presumably <laughs> uh, by the the, the, the Tony Theatre Wing. something like that. American Theatre Wing? American Theatre Wing. Is that wing. who does it? I think that's who it is. They. They, mm-hmm. the American Theatre Wing, um, announced the nominations for the Tonys. And as yes. you can imagine, 2020 has been uh, an odd year for live theatre. Yeah. Uh, Broadway hasn't been happening since March. Yeah, it's been closed think. for a while, which meant... Which is that, devastating. Uh, devastating, but it also meant that, you know, like things like the Tonys, which are a regular occurrence, uh, you know, ha- had weird uh, provisos on how they operated. Mm. Uh, and it turns out that they were, they were released nominations for what little shows were eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so congratulations to all the, the nominees. I'm so sorry that your seasons got cut short. I'm so sorry for all the shows that like had opened but weren't yet eligible for Tonys. Like it, It's all very complicated. I appreciate your optimism that people who have been in, involved in, in Tony-nominated productions listen to our podcast, Ellis. That's, that's you you nice never know. You. you never know. Hi, Aaron Tveit. <laughs> congratulations um, on winning congrats- your Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason that we decided to do Moulin Rouge this week... Mm-hmm is because it was one of the few musicals that debuted in the time period that this um, toning pool is drawn from. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, um, because there also is a reduced pool because so many shows couldn't open in the time yeah. that they were supposed to, um, it means that Aaron Tveit is the one actor nominated for <laughs> Best Actor in a Musical and... I guess best leading actor in a musical. Best leading actor, yeah. um, and will therefore win. So Aaron Tveit, um, avid listener of the podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening and um congrats on winning your Tony by default. Yeah. Yeah. Um we default. Do so, default. <laughs> so we decided Did Millicent Sarge just make a Simpsons reference? I think you did. Well done. I'm very proud of you. Oh, blame my boyfriend. <laughs> Look, I blame him for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. He's a very bad influence on me. So we decided we would uh, look at the movie that inspired the Tony-nominated stage musical Mm -hmm. of the same name. That is Moulin Rouge. It was directed by Baz Luhrmann. It was released in 2001, starring Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor, and was a big old jukebox movie musical. Yeah. The intersection of many genres. (laughs) It's also lauded as the film that brought 
musical films back into prominence. They had fallen out of fashion for a bit, and then Moulin Rouge, followed by Chicago, kind of brought them back for a little bit. I was going to say, didn't we say that about Chicago? We did. A few we weeks did. Ago? <laughs> we did. Well, Chicago helped, but it was Moulin Rouge was kind of the big movie, the first big music, yeah. movie musical in a long while. But I suppose. I suppose the distinction is that Chicago was based on a stage musical that already existed, whereas Moulin Rouge was entirely original. Yes. In, in terms of the, the concept and the structure and the storyline. Like the, yeah. Um, All the, the songs the were... The songs written. were pre-existing. Mm-hmm. Other than Come What May, I think. Come What May was the only original song yeah. uh, in the film. And um, the storyline like takes its influence from a few places, like um, La Boheme is mm-hmm. kind of referenced, like the... The Starcross Lovers, where one of them's dying, and um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah, I think there's some. A uh, lot of lot of crossover from from there, but also uh, Baz Luhrmann has gone on record many times saying that this was influenced uh, by Bollywood films, and he wanted to capture the feel that he had watching Bollywood films, knowing absolutely nothing about what was going on, but still feeling all the emotions of mm. of the events. Yeah, um, which leads yeah. to. A final spectacular scene show within a show that, uh, you know, is very Indian in appearance and is a bit dicey when it comes to appropriation. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that a little <laughs> bit later. We'll, you know, save that for later on. Uh, Ellis, you grew up loving this movie. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I, I grew up... Loving this movie. That's what we we studied it in high school. Actually, it was one of our year twelve things. We oh, studied um, all three of the the Red Curtain trilogy by Baz Luhrmann. That's uh, Strictly Ballroom, Romeo plus Juliet, and <laughs> Moulin Rouge. Um, so, like, I loved it, adored it in high school, and I haven't really revisited it for I don't know eight to ten years since then. Um, but it's always kind of had like a, a special place in my heart, and certain songs from this film really kind of get me going and, and, and in a really lovely, adorable, nostalgic way. Mm. Whereas you, Mim, uh, <laughs> you finished watching it today. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know how this happened, but as a, a theatre nerd and, like, movie, musical, and just musical theatre fan, I don't know how I have gone my entire life not having seen this film, but I literally started watching it for the first time ever yesterday. And... I have some questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so I was saying to Ellis before, um, I started watching it yesterday. I probably got halfway through and was like, oh, I need to take a break from this. And I finished watching it today before we started recording. It's intense. Um, it's intense. And also, I feel like it's like eating a very dense, rich cake that has, like, fondant icing and you take two or three bites of it and you're like, wow, this is so sweet. This is the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. And you keep eating it and you're like, I feel sick. This is too much. And that's exactly how I felt watching this movie. Like, to begin with, I was like, holy shit, this is such a spectacle. Um, This has, like, such bold stylistic choices and, like, that's really awesome. And I'm sort of overwhelmed at how much this is kind of jumping out at me and it was wild and I was like this mm. is incredible uh, and then I just got exhausted <laughs> I I think I had the opposite re-watching it because the opening kind of happened and I was 
caught off guard at how frantic it was and everything going about wildly and lots of zip cuts and fast editing. Mm. And then I kind of settled into it and I was like, okay, I'm in the groove of the movie now. I can, I don't have to, I don't have to focus too hard sure. to ensure that I get everything because I was, I was in the mindset of the Moulin Rouge. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think also I just felt a little bit nostalgic watching the start because like Montmartre is like my favorite part of France like I love it I I mean I I get it it's a huge spectacle mm. and it's um just so bold in all of its choices like it's so colorful it's so melodramatic it's mm. um like the the ensemble scenes and the score is like everything is extra and it's cool in that regard but it was just a bit too much for me to digest, yeah. I think. I also think that it would be a lot more of an experience like watching it in a cinema on a big yeah. screen. Like I was watching it on my laptop on um no not Netflix. I actually downloaded it and bought it from iTunes. Pay for your art, friends, if you can. <laughs> um so I, I think that that probably would have changed the experience a bit. Um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a spectacle to be seen and viewed as such, which is why I wonder uh, why it's been so successful making the transfer to Broadway, where you can have that sense of spectacle right in front of you. Yeah, um, yeah, like there's a freaking elephant in the Broadway set. Yeah, like a like a set elephant. It's not a real elephant. That oh. would that would bring up some dicey questions about animal rights, etc. But it's a part of the thing. Yeah, (laughs) But I think think one of the things that struck me most revisiting it was, yes, it is uh, an example of melodrama. Everything is Mm. heightened emotion. 100%. And a lot of the characters are um, stock standard stereotypes. They're archetypes. Um, But what struck me was the lack of diversity when it came to female characters. Yes. Because uh, for whatever reason, I hadn't realized that Satine, uh, Nicole Kidman, was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are other women present. Yeah. None of them have particularly distinct characteristics. Uh, Carolyn O'Connor plays one who has a couple of lines here mm. or there, but very much just like a, a, a bit part yeah. Satine is the only one that we know anything about. She's, and even then, we don't know a lot about yeah, her. Yeah, she's the only, like, major player who is a woman. Yeah. Like, if you were to list, like, the, you know, ten lead roles, if you will, of this film, she would be the only woman. Yeah. Mm. And I think that isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> to put it to, frankly. To put it, frankly. Uh, and, and I think... I think it comes back to uh, something that I, I believe we've mentioned on the podcast before, this idea that you, you get a lot of films and the only women that you see portrayed in them are mothers or prostitutes. And you step into the Moulin Rouge where you have Satine, who is an exotic dancer slash courtesan, mm-hmm. and she is backed up by a troop of other scantily clad uh, dancers all of whom you can assume are some sort of exotic dancers or maybe even courtesans themselves. Mm. And that's it. That's that's all the yeah. all the women in the film. And then there are some kind of like maternal figures who kind of look after Satine a bit. Mm. But again, like 
mothers and sex workers. Yeah. Um, and the thing is that, like, if you want to be a sex worker, go for your life. Like, oh, totally. if you want to be a woman who, um, you know, is is sexually uh, provocative and wants to, you know, confidently express your sexuality, freaking go for it. But the issue is more so when you have an all-male creative team mm. who go, you know... Um, what the only women that we want to see in this film are people who are defined by their sexuality. Yeah, and it's in direct contrast with the diversity of all the male characters. Like you have Christian, yeah. who is the the love struck, penniless writer. You have the Duke, who is very uh, possessive and and mustache twirlingly evil. <laughs> you have Harold Zidler, who runs the Moulin Rouge, and he's very bombastic and. And kind of devious in his own way. You have all like of the, the Bohemians. Trip of the Bohemians, yeah. yeah who are like, all wild and quirky and individuals in their own rights. And yet, the only women we see are sex workers. Mm. And the only stories that they deem worth telling about women are those of sex workers. <sighs> <sighs> Patriarchy is alive and well. <laughs> <laughs> Mim, you've made reference to characters being sexy lamps (laughs) in the past can you can you remind our listeners what that is so the sexy lamp test is another feminist test such as like similar to the Bechtel test in that it's a way of working out the feminist merits of a work um sexy lamp test was created by kelly sue deconic i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly who is a comic book writer um and also Interestingly, I just went onto her Wikipedia page and the subcategories are career, personal life, feminism. And I really hope that if ever I get a Wikipedia page, that's what my subcategories read as well. Um, but the Sexy Lamp Test created by Kelly Sue DeConnick is a, um, a test where you take a woman in a film, movie, a comic mm-hmm. book, stage musical, etc., and you... Uh, say, could I replace you with a sexy lamp without influencing the plot? And if the answer is yes, you have failed the sexy lamp test and it is an indictment on Mm. your treatment of women. (laughs) (laughs) It just kind of like reinforces that idea that women are possessions that don't really have any agency of of their own. And are there for their their sexuality and their allure. Mm. Like, I, I want to share a choice quote from the Duke, who, let's, <laughs> let's face it, is the villain. His He's actions the villain, are absolutely. critiqued. Uh, but here is something that he is saying to about Satine uh, to Harold Zidler. Uh, I want a contract that binds Satine to me exclusively. Satine will be mine. I'm a jealous man. I don't like other people touching my things. Um, if I may, Ellis, I'd like to do a choice um, reading with just which with just a few modifications. Oh, please go yeah. ahead. I want a contract that binds this lamp to me exclusively. This sexy lamp will be mine. I'm a jealous man. I don't like other people touching my lamp. <laughs> I'm afraid that works perfectly. It really does. It mm. really does. And like Ellis, you alluded to the fact that. Obviously, yes, the Duke does have this, like, very possessive, very um, controlling uh, relationship towards Satine and, like, wants to mm. control and own her, and it's gross. Um, but, yeah, he is he is the villain, and so by virtue of that fact, we kind of take his actions with a grain of salt and go, well, that's 
you know, evil at least. Yeah. But then there are other men in the film that, um, to lesser extents, treat her in the same way, and because they're more so um, the um, heroines, or at least sort of a bit more neutral in their portrayal. Yeah, they're they're not negative. They're not pos- posited as negative forces. Sure. In the film, I mean, I sat there really disliking Zidler. Yeah. Um, like in my mind, he was villainous to an extent. But I think that that was just because I don't like condescending, controlling, paternalistic men. <laughs> uh, so I think that was my bias. <laughs> but it's totally there. Like, he is very controlling about Satine's life. Zidler's the one who's kind of like, hey, can you go sleep with the Duke? And then he'll pay for the renovations of the theatre and you'll be a real actress and you won't have to be a sex worker anymore. Like, that's what that's Zidler's motivation. Mm. He's, like, pushing this person who he treats as a daughter. He's like, go and, go and be a sex worker for my establishment and keep my theatre running, please and thank you. Yeah, and um, but also, like, the way he talks about her, like, oh, my little sparrow and stuff, mm. like, has all these, like, possessive pet names for her. But, like, also has a freaking telescope into her room yeah that's creepy 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 that's creepy. really creepy and th- there are, there's there's only so much that jim broadbent can <laughs> do to kind of redeem that because I, I, I jim broadbent is wonderful at in everything and he is he's is also very over the top and zany in in this in quite a delightful yeah, way like it's an awesome portrayal yeah but the things that he does... Like, he doesn't tell Satine that she's dying. Oh, yeah, not cool. He keeps that from her. And I'm like, if anyone should be in the know, it should be her. Yeah. He, he says, she mustn't know. The show must go on. It's like, mm. that's interesting, uh, that you're the gatekeeper of this really important information that will affect her enormously, like telling her that she's going to die mm-hmm. uh, and she might make some different decisions, but also the fact that he's like, oh, the show must go on, as is I'm going to prioritise my business over like the well-being and the autonomy of Satine. And, uh, Not cool. Like here, Here's my little tangent rant. The show must go on mentality is really quite toxic and utilised, I think, by, by more insidious producers, say, to manipulate their performers because art in general is kind of looked down upon by society as not being a real job performers and artists are therefore kind of treated in a way of like you're lucky to be here you are fortunate that we have graced you with the opportunity to be an artist Mm. therefore the show must go on no matter what because your well-being is less important to my profit making the other man who has a relationship with Satine is Ewan McGregor playing the role of Christian. Yep. Um, the role that Aaron Tveit then played on Broadway, nominated for his Tony. Congrats, Aaron. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, Aaron yeah. Tveit. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that, like, this is very much set up as the the relationship that's like the cornerstone of the the plot and the one that is like held to these really high standards because he's the hopeless romantic that falls for her. She falls back for him. She falls for him in return. 
you know, against the odds because, mm. you know, she's this high-profile sex worker and he's some lowly, penniless, bohemian writer. Um, but, you know, she loves him despite his low status, etc. So, you know, it's a um, star-crossed lovers almost yeah. feel. And even though this is kind of lauded as the, the beautiful romantic love story and the key plot line of the whole film there's still some real toxicity in that relationship as well and the um the mentality mm. that christian has towards satine too he he can be quite possessive of her in more subtle ways like subtle is not a word that one should use while describing <laughs> Moulin Rouge no it's the it is the last <laughs> word I would use to but, describe this film but compared to the other portrayals of possessiveness in this film his is more subtle and in some ways potentially more insidious because it's like coated in this idea of like this is what love this is this is what you do for love yeah yeah and also because he's very much the heroine and you are set up to you know, want to want to support him. You're like you're rooting for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of the instances of him being jealous and icky and possessive is um, where he's constantly like got this this jealous streak where he's like, oh, I don't want you to sleep with the duke, etc. Yeah. Um, which I mean, I I, I get that. Uh, it's you know, it's yeah. not nice to think about your partner. Um, you know, being intimate with somebody else, but at the same time, she's she's a sex worker. It's her job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there are plenty of sex workers who have partners whose partner is like, yes, my my partner has sex with other people because mm. it's literally their profession. And, and like, no matter how many times Satine conveys to him, it's like. There is nothing going on with the Duke mm-hmm. in terms of like my, my heart and my emotions. That is all I, I, I'm like I'm sharing that with you. No matter how many times she says that, he's still like, yeah, but I don't want you to boink him. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The other thing that I really take issue with is the fact that when Satine breaks things off with Christian because she has been manipulated into doing so mm. by Zidler. Um, and like the Duke has threatened to kill Christian as well. Yes. He's like, if, if she sees him again, I'll kill him. Mm. And then Zidler is like, you're dying, uh, but can you please uh, like, like send Christian away to save him, but also then go with the Duke just so we can still get the money for the yeah. theater and everything and pretend you're not dying. Are we cool with this yeah. puppet? Oh, the thing is that it's not like she wouldn't make strong choices if she had options to. It's just that she is like narrowed into, um, she's just forced into all of these corners where she has like two bad options that she has to choose between mm. because of all of the, um, all of the scenarios and all of the expectations that the men controlling her life put upon her. She has so little agency. 
Yeah. Like it, it it's astounding. But uh, you were saying so when she she breaks mm. up with Christian. She breaks up with Christian because she has to because she because the choices in her life are made by the men who control her. Um, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't reflect poorly on her character. That reflects poorly on the men. Mm-hmm. When she has to break up with Christian, he doesn't take that well, obviously, because really. he is a hopeless romantic who has been like in love to the point of obsession with this woman. And so what he chooses to do is not to be gracious, is not to show respect for this woman he professes to be in love with. No, 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 no. It's to take a bunch of money um, and go and thrust it upon her because, you know, she must have been making the whole thing up. And so, you know, it was nothing more than than sex work, so she has to be paid for it. Um, and then it ends up like this spills out onto the freaking stage where there's a whole host of people there to see Spectacular Spectacular. And he like slut shames her in the middle of this packed auditorium and in front of the whole freaking ensemble of scores of mm. people and like yells at her and calls her a whore. Yeah, I've and then paid runs my off. whore. Like, uh, I just think, I just think that. Men need to get better at being more gracious when they are turned down by somebody. <laughs> like, yes, of course it is upsetting when somebody that you like or love uh, does not reciprocate that or tells you that they don't reciprocate that, but proportionate responses. Yeah. Don't, don't slut-shame somebody as your immediate response to being turned down. No, definitely not. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like, then she starts singing Come What May and then he starts singing it back and then all is forgiven. Mm. I'm like, no, that was really douchey. <laughs> that was yeah, he, that was a very disproportionate response. You and McGregor, no. Christian, sorry, I know you're playing a character. I know it's not an indication of you as a person. Um, uh, yeah, not a fan of that. No, and like, like breakups are hard. Yes. But utilize that as a chance to explore yourself as opposed to taking it out on the other person. Yeah, like you don't need a, a vitriolic response towards them. That's, that's not cool. Do, do you know what makes for good art? Heartbreak. Channel it into your writing, <laughs> Christian. Do what Adele, Taylor Swift and Phil Collins have made careers out of. <laughs> it's interesting that you mention Adele and Taylor Swift because I would make the pretty broad sweeping statement this is definitely not um, <laughs> true in all scenarios but um i would make the broad statement that women are a lot better at accepting and um responding better to rejection and heartbreak than men are um especially like in a hetero setting mm. because women don't intrinsically feel entitled to sexual relationships and the people that they date, whereas our patriarchal society kind of gives a gives a level of entitlement to to men towards yeah. the women that or the people that they date. Yeah, mm. and I think that possessiveness is really showcased in Moulin Rouge, and in some cases critique, and in some cases absolutely not critiqued, and particularly wonder, Christians. I wonder if part of the issue is that you have films like 
Moulin Rouge touted as a big love story, a mm. huge example of true love and true romance. Truth, beauty, freedom, freedom, and above all, love. love. And this is what love is. When someone rejects you, you throw money at them and call them a whore. Yeah, I wonder if that <laughs> is is part of it. I, I wonder if that is part of the, the kind of the reinforcement of this is how you respond to to somebody rejecting you. Yeah. Like and that and that love has to be this like all encompassing, like all consuming, intoxicating, obsessive mm. um, feeling sentiment towards somebody. And like on one hand, this is a melodrama. Oh, and of 100%. course everything is gonna be heightened and everything really is heightened <laughs> in Moulin Rouge. But at the same time, like that leaves an impact on something. And so if you're if you're showcasing things in a melodramatic fashion showcase them slightly healthier. Mm. You can still have that passionate, all-consuming, oh my God, I, I love you and my heart's about to explode. You can still convey that while still presenting uh, a really respectful relationship. Mm. I had um, I had a um, an acting teacher in the States called Tracy, um, who I love very much, and her... Sh- her catchphrase that she said all the time that I always come back to because it's so helpful is the truth is a balloon you can blow it up but it's still the truth oh I like that yeah so I feel like that's kind of happening here like yes everything is uh is melodramatic and over the top but at the same time it's still got is truth at the heart of it Mm. and so yeah you can still take away um you can still take away the messages even though they're presented in this hyper real way yeah and also, everything is stylized. Like, very little things are 100% naturalistic because yeah. if you present something 100% naturalistic, it's boring as f- <laughs> Like, like even, like, even in films, like, it, because of the editing, like, nothing is in real time. Like, nothing mm. is actually... Nothing is 100% naturalistic. There are always going to be artistic choices that define things. And so, you know, we're always taking away these, these sentiments and these lessons um, from things that are heightened and edited and where your disbelief has to be suspended in some regard anyway. And if, there are any, if there's anybody out there going like, oh, but of course he had to react badly because he then had to rock up and be on stage so they can sing their song together and live happily ever after. It's like, well, I think, no, <laughs> write a better story. You, can, you don't have to justify things with your half-baked plot. Or like Just write he, a better plot. He could have rocked up and been like, oh... Um, I know what you said, but like, I'd love to give it another chance. Or like, is there anything I can do to work on to make things better? Um, which I mean, there is probably problematic sides to that. Regardless, much better than chucking money at her and calling her a whore, though. On stage, in front yeah. of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Not great. Also, his jacket disappears in that sequence. Unless I missed it. Like he he's wearing a jacket while on stage, and then he like gets off the stage and I don't know where his jacket went. Maybe I missed him taking it off, but it just I actually, disappeared. I actually think that I read that that was like, people thought that was a blooper, but apparently it's not a blooper because in the background you see him taking it off. Somewhere. Oh, okay. Well, I completely yeah. missed it. And I was just like, did, did he always not have a jacket? Did I miss something? Anyway. 
something else I want to talk about. There's one sequence in particular in this movie that just made me feel repulsed. And I and I asked Ellis to guess before. I was like, Ellis, there was one scene I absolutely hated. What do you think it was? And he guessed it right on the first try. It was the Like a Virgin sequence. Ugh. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> so for those of you who haven't seen it, and I don't believe this is in the stage musical. Um, oh, interesting. They've adapted it out. Uh, the uh, the Duke he has planned a, a supper for Satine, and Satine's fallen ill, and she can't make it. And Zidler goes to try and placate him, and the the lie that he comes up with is she's confessing. She's confessing her sins because she wants her first night with you to be like her wedding night, because you make her feel like a virgin. I know this is an audio medium, but I just rolled my eyes really hard and I needed the listeners to know that. <laughs> <sighs> so this this sequence makes me so mad because I feel like when Like a Virgin is... Su- <laughs> I have to keep calling... like per- I have to really keep emphasizing the G because on Triple J they have a segment called Like a Virgin, mm. which is when people do covers of things and I keep wanting to call it that. Because it's a play on the name of this song, mm. like a virgin. I feel like when a woman sings it, it's it's empowering and it's about um, female pleasure, basically, mm-hmm. and that's wonderful. And it's about like being with somebody that makes you like remember the the joy of sex, basically. <laughs> um, and then, uh, when men sing it, specifically in third person about somebody else, mm. it's like it just becomes an icky song about men coveting women's virginity. And mm. that's a gross concept. It is. And therefore I did not have a good time. <laughs> that, that was one of those sequences that, because it's so camp and over the top and there's lots of like dancing and la 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 las in the background... I, I found it quite amusing in high school and now watching back and I'm like, oh, this is not mm. aged well at all. Yeah. This is not great. No. And like no amount of hammy Richard Roxburgh or Jim Broadbent <laughs> can kind of take away that ick factor yeah. of it just being two guys craving a woman's purity. Ooh. And that if she's Ooh. a virgin, she's somehow more pure and therefore more valuable yeah disgusting and i think that in the 19 years since this since this film came out there have been a lot more mainstream discussions about why the idea of like taking in inverted commas someone's virginity is an issue and also why virginity itself is an issue because you know it puts such an emphasis on penetrative sex when mm. you know you don't become a new person or you don't intrinsically change just because you have this one new experience um so i think with that in mind the fact that we kind of now question the need to even put all this emphasis on virginity kind mm. of again puts that song in a in a different light than it would have been presented 19 years ago but even then still icky still <laughs> icky still icky and also I'm of the opinion, in a, in, a, in, a, in a general sense, that I don't understand male fascination with female virginity. Yeah. Because surely, <laughs> 
virgins aren't as experienced having sex, so surely it'll be less enjoyable yeah. than having sex with somebody who knows what they're doing yeah. Yeah. and who isn't kind of like terrified by mm. this notion of the all importance of virginity being put upon them. Mm. Like, <laughs> it just kind of baffles me yeah. in that way. Yeah. I think it's it's less about the enjoyableness of the experience and more about I want to have a profound and life-changing effect on you. It's it's about ownership and, yeah. and claiming yeah. and And again that's that's why I feel like t- like taking someone's virginity is such a such an icky turn of phrase. And like losing your virginity as well another issue because it's like you don't lose anything. You gain yeah. an experience. Um something that I hear talked about a lot and I really like is the idea of flipping it from talking about um, like losing your virginity or having virginity in the first place yeah. and um, instead talking about sexual debuts. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And then you, then you like sound like a debutante, <laughs> like white gloves and stuff. Because in addition to it not making it sound like you've lost something and not prizing this idea of purity and chastity because that's ick. Um, but instead talking about it, it's just like a new experience that you have, like that's one side of it, but also then it's not heteronormative as heck Mm. because like, sure, technically by like very heteronormative penetrative standards, I'm sure there are lots of queer folk who technically are virgins because they've never had penile vaginal sex. Um, yeah. but like obviously are still sexually active. So yeah, sexual debut. I advocate for that. I like that. Yeah. Gives, gives the whole affair a, a certain je ne sais quoi. Yeah. yeah. Moral of the story on this portion of the episode. Um, <laughs> like a virgin when sung by a woman, empowering and sexually liberating and puts the like centers on female pleasure. Mm. Love that. When it's sung by men, ick. And also, let's just let's just use the term sexual debut more because it's fun. I like that. I really like that. Yeah. And it can kind of mean whatever it needs to to mm. whoever is saying it. It, it doesn't exactly. restrict you to exactly to one. Yeah. Groovy. One thing that this movie <laughs> doesn't handle with tact is its treatment of sex workers, because most of the women in the film are sex workers. We assume. We like, assume. Like, it's not it, explicit. It, it's but... assumed. Yeah. But at least Satine is. Yeah. Um, and referred to as such. Yeah, a courtesan, if you will. So, yeah, there are just some moments where they kind of really look down upon sex workers. For example, like, Satine is not happy with her lot in life. She is, her whole thing is like, I want to get out of this business. I want to become a real actress. That's the, the term that she uses a lot. And clearly, if she was happy with her life as a dancer and a sex worker at the Moulin Rouge, she wouldn't she have that be aspiration. She would so keen to get out of there. Exactly. Yeah. Like, she keeps being like, I just want to fly away from here. Mm. And then, That's my best Nicole Kidman. That was flawless. Thank you. <laughs> and then you have uh, moments like before uh, El Tango de Roxanne, uh, the Argentinian says the line, never fall in love with a woman who sells herself. It always ends bad. Mm. Which again is just not congruent with 
with the reality, plenty of sex workers out there have stable relationships, yeah. aren't looked down upon or shouldn't be looked down yeah. upon for their profession. And again, that comes back to the fact that if if the women, if the only women in your uh, in your film are sex workers or assumed sex workers, and you say something like all sex workers can't be trusted with romance, mm. you're effectively saying all women can't be trusted in this way because <laughs> that's the world you've put forward. Yeah, damn. Damn. Yeah. Another thing, something that happens during that sequence, um, El Tango to Roxanne, which I will admit is a very, like, cinematic masterpiece, like, it's gorgeous. It's one of my favorite musical sequences yeah. put to film. I think it's it's, it's incredible. Um, the guy who's singing it, I'm really stressed about his vocal health. I love his voice. Oh, uh, it really, like, oh, somebody's going to get a scope in that throat. It's like this gravelly um, Tom Waits shit, and I'm yeah. like, yes, give me all of that. Oh no, I just I I just felt my larynx seize up, being like, oh, that's got to hurt. Um, Moving on <laughs> from my concern for his vocal health. Um, the other thing that happens in that sequence is the fact that we see snippets mm-hmm. of um, the the scene between the Duke and Satine where he has been promised her and the fact that oh, she has to sleep with him so that they can secure the funds for this theatre. Um, oh, and also, like, everybody's just kind of sitting around waiting to hear if she did sleep with him, which is a little little weird. Mm. Like, they're just kind of like, they weren't doing it. They were literally just sitting there until they started the dance sequence. And they're all just kind of like, oh, I wonder if she's slept with him yet. Mm. That's a little little weird. Yeah. Uh, so what actually eventuates in that scene is that she can't go through with it. She doesn't want to. Um, he has given her this extravagant necklace, which I think I read, albeit on IMDb, so grain of salt, um, was like one of the most expensive pieces of jewellery ever custom made for cinema. Ooh. Fancy. Um, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but what happens is he like rips the necklace off her, kind of choking her in the process, and mm. then is very violent towards her, like tries to force himself upon her. Chases it's, her around a table. Yeah, it's terrifying. And you only see snippets of it because that's cut in and out with the tango sequence. Um, and my immediate reaction when I saw this portion, because it's shown in these really quick flashes and snippets, is that I kind of went... Should we not be giving a bit more focus and a bit more reverence and a bit more weight to what is happening there? Because um, assault, violence against women, especially against sex workers, is, you know, such a heavy issue and something that um, we shouldn't be flippant about. Mm. Um, and so my immediate response was, could we not have given that a bit more attention that it warrants, that is warranted? Um but then immediately afterwards, you see Satine's response to it, where she is like, um, like heavily crying and um, obviously really traumatized by it when she's talking to Christian about it. Mm-hmm. And my reaction to that was, I think it's actually more important to give reverence to the response rather than the act itself. So yes. I actually, while I my immediate reaction was one of reservation, I actually thought that 
that was handled quite well ultimately. And I think I think it kind of takes you by surprise because that moment uh, afterwards is one of the more realistic yeah. portions, and it is kind of treated with the reverence uh, that that act would have uh, should receive, which goes against almost everything else in the film thus far, which kind of makes it more striking when they're like, no, this is the moment that we're going to ensure reflects reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, for all of the issues with the portrayal of women in this film, I do actually think that giving airtime to her trauma response to being assaulted like that is Mm. a credit to it. Yeah. Mm. But I, I again I don't think it's I don't think it's enough to kind of counteract mm. all of the other problematic uh, elements yeah. that the film raises. Yeah, I suppose um, when you when you cultivate a culture where um, men are allowed to feel feelings of possessiveness and control um, over women that they have romantic or sexual attraction to um or women in 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 general um when you create that culture that's going to ultimately lead to instances where um there's a sense of entitlement to um a woman in her body and her sexuality um so like that's exactly what rape culture is you know Mm. it's it's little things that we um we let slip by that go unchecked, which lead to the um, the more serious um, incidences. So I think that it's interesting that the movie gives reverence and gives airtime and kind of demonstrates the weight and the severity of the actual abuse mm. and lets some of the more problematic issues of possessiveness and attitudes towards women go unchecked yeah because it's like one leads to the other they're they're interconnected but i wonder if that's kind of the insidiousness of how far that kind of culture has embedded itself in society that we recognize the extreme cases of abuse and don't necessarily recognize the the more insidious cases. The more subtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something that's really unsubtle <laughs> is uh, the finale, which we alluded to earlier, uh, really kind of amps up the, hey, in case you missed it, this was influenced by Bollywood. <laughs> uh, and the show within a show, Spectacular Spectacular, uh, is set in India and is a big quote-unquote Bollywood-style number where I think they're singing in Hindi and they have a very stereotypical, quote-unquote, traditional garb. Mm. Uh, and and kind of watching that, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure all those people are white and not Indian. Yeah. 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 I suppose... I think there is a distinction, but there is a distinction from what I understand... Um, obviously I can't speak from a place of first-hand experience Um, there's a distinction between like um, honoring a culture and paying homage to a culture Mm. and appropriating a culture and I think that 
I think that that scene really oversteps the mark. It really does. Like, if Baz Luhrmann wanted to write a love letter to Bollywood or the Bollywood films that inspired this film, he succeeded by making the rest of the film. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't didn't have to (laughs) shove a literal quote-unquote Bollywood sequence to, to hammer home that point. And... Yeah, like, it, it's it's a very, like, glamorously shot, glamorously decked out. All the costumes are overwhelming and, and mm. stunning. But at the end of the day, it's... It's the whole bunch of white people. Yeah, it's like cultural hijacking. Yeah. Is, is the phrase that, that you introduced me to, which I really, yeah. really like. I got that from an article that I, that I read about it. The, um, the article that used the term cultural hijacking, was called Bollywood in Drag, Moulin Rouge, and the Aesthetics of Global Cinema by Sanjita Gopal and Sujata Murthy. Mm. And of course, this isn't something that we can speak to from the experience of somebody who belongs to a culture that oh, of course, of course. has been appropriated. But also it's, it's something that you that I think that in 2020, especially when the global community has become a lot more aware and cognizant of how far racism permeates into our social fabric um that you know looking back on some things that haven't aged well and looking back on films that are like less than 20 years old we can go hey that that was a mistake let's not replicate that in the cinema that we're creating now yeah and you'd like to think that cinema is move has a trajectory of moving away from things like that You'd hope, wouldn't you? One would you? hope. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Ellis, I, I almost feel stupid asking this because the answer is so obvious. Oh! Actually, no, I might go back on that. Um, but does <laughs> Moulin Rouge pass the Bechdel test? No, it does not. And regardless of what you might be thinking, I don't think it does because even though, apparently, in all subsequent material and the credits and everything... All the other dancers and the the, the matriarch figures have names. Mm. Uh, we don't learn them yeah. in the film. Like this is all just like, because they roll in the credits. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't mean that <laughs> they've been named in the material itself. And just because be- it's on a casting call. And because Satine is the only f- prominent female character. She doesn't have a conversation with another one to pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. The only in- instance that I thought might have counted was uh, when the nurses are kind of looking after her and giving her medication to deal with her TB. Even then, Ziggler comes in super quick. Yeah, also, and I don't think that those characters have names. No. Yeah. And if they do, it's only in the credits and not in the actual film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, hot take. If you literally have one prominent female character who is named, really hard to pass the Bechdel test. Really hard. Um, so, to summarise, Moulin Rouge has failed both the Bechdel test and the sexy lamp test. Like, I know that Satine is more than a sexy lamp, but literally Just. every other female character could be a sexy lamp. Yeah. Uh, we have... Men controlling and influencing the lives of the the one sole female lead, and that's only critiqued to some extent by one of those characters mm-hmm. being a villain, but the other two not so much. Um, we see a really uh, bad cover of Like a Virgin. 
Uh, but still makes me cringe thinking about it. Um, I think the only pro that I would give this film is the fact that I think that um, giving weight and prominence to Satine's emotional response after she's been abused is... Um, it's handled, handled very well. well. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the one tiny saving grace. <laughs> but... You can't come back from that other stuff, can you? No. So hold on, I'm confused. Are are we rating it or ruining it? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm... oh we are well and truly ruining it. <laughs> I would be... I'm I'm keen to see... Um, I, I would... I hope in my heart of hearts that once Broadway can reopen, that mm-hmm. um, Moulin Rouge will get another run, um, it, get restaged... It is supposedly coming to Australia at some point. Incredible. They, they are apparently staging a version of it at whenever we can stage things again. Mm. And I am cautiously optimistic that because that was mounted in 2020, 2019 or 2020, yeah. that um, potentially some of the more problematic elements of it have been modernised so as to reflect modern values of how we don't treat women as possessions and objects. (laughs) We can only hope. We can only hope. Uh, I... I also wanted to give a shout-out, because we've talked about Aaron Tavea a lot. I want to give a shout-out to Karen Olivo, who is Satine. Congratulations on your nomination. um, Oh, was she nominated too? She was. Oh, great! Karen Olivo, well done. There wasn't a lot on Broadway this year, so (laughs) almost everything got nominated. (laughs) But also, we have seen that if something doesn't warrant a nomination they're not they're not going to chuck in nominations for nomination's sake because Aaron Tveit was the only yeah. male lead in a musical nominated and surely not the only man who played a leading role in a musical on Broadway unless he was in which case <sighs> well th- there's there's one nomination for best leading actor and there are three nominations for best uh, leading actress mm. I do think it is cool that a role originated in the film by a white woman on Broadway was played by a Latina woman. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's that's cool. That's cool. I I'm glad that we're in, you know, in tiny increments and in very small anecdotal examples moving away from oh, well the woman who originated the role was white, so every subsequent actress who plays her must be white. Mm. Mm. I I really like that. Particularly for something as big as Moulin Rouge. Mm. 100%. Huge huge draw card. 100%. I, I just want to uh, kind of say I find it interesting rewatching this film uh, not only because I, I felt that some of the politics didn't hold up uh, as well as I remembered. Um, like I didn't dislike rewatching it. I actually had quite an enjoyable time watching it as a film. It just didn't capture me in the same way that it did, which makes me worry. It's like, oh no, am I not the hopeless romantic I was no, at seventeen? You, you still are, Ellis. Yeah, it's all right. You still get to keep your your status as the hopeless romantic, and I will continue to keep my status as a cynical bitch. <laughs> but like, there are some bits of this film that get me. Like, I love the elephant love medley. Oh no! Yeah, I, this is where I we completely disagree. Not into it at all. I 
when I when I respond to movies and musicals that we watch, I like always write notes in a, like a stream of consciousness kind of way, and just have a lot of stuff in there that is not at all re- relevant to feminism. <laughs> and a couple of my choice notes were: What is Kylie Minogue doing here? Because uh, yeah. she's early on as a the absent fairy for mm-hmm. some reason. She has a cameo. Um, has a cameo. Uh, but one of my notes was: I fucking. <laughs> hate jukebox musicals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were not in. You were not in. Uh, That's fine. Um, nah, not interested. Ellis, if our friends would also like to um, air their frustrations at jukebox <laughs> musicals, um, specifically the uh, uh, recontextualizing of, you know, iconic Madonna songs, um, or want to chat to us about the feminist merits or lack thereof of Moulin Rouge how can they do so my friend well everybody knows that getting in touch with us is like oxygen getting in touch with us lifts us up where we belong all we need is getting in touch with us I'm giving all Ellis all we the, need is getting in touch with us the death glare to end all death glares I'll do the whole thing don't I'll do don't <laughs> Well, you can find us on Facebook. We are uh, Feminism Ruins Everything Dash. It's a feminist podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. Uh, or if you uh, liked our content and would like to support us financially, check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. We'd also be very appreciative if you wanted to follow us and our yeah. show on whatever platform you're listening from. We'd uh, love if you gave us a rating on Apple Podcasts because oh, that's really nice. doable. Uh, it takes like two seconds. Um, leave us a review if you feel so strongly, or like tell your friends about it. Yeah. Also, if you are listening like day of when this episode is coming out, like <laughs> if you're listening on the 23rd, Friday the 23rd or Saturday the 24th of October, you're in luck because you've just scraped in in real time to know that we have some live shows coming up What on Saturday the 24th of October 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, or on Friday the 30th of October... Um, 2020. Yeah. So come and listen to us talk about Frozen and Friends live at the Star Theatres if you're in Adelaide. And I'll put the info in the show notes. We're going to be singing some songs. We're going to be doing audience participation. It's going to be a really lovely time. We're very excited to uh, and and very grateful for the fact that we're able to get back onto stages in in Adelaide. Uh, It's it's been a hell of a year for the arts so mm. please go and support as much live theater as you can in a safe manner and if you are listening to this after the 30th of october 2020 oh it was such a good time oh everybody there was so delightful and and beautiful and oh. and all the, the the things that we said about the topics oh people wept at our I insight i hate that i keep setting you up and empowering you to do this a bit <laughs> anyway take care friends all you need is love, but a girl has got to eat. All you need is love, or we'll end up in the street. All we need Shut is up. Bye! <laughs> Feminism ruins everything. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.